Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for November 28th through December 4th, 2022. This is covering Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Hi, scriptures. Oh, it's so nice to see you. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 30 minutes, 44 seconds. Boy, that's not long at all. What would it be daily? 4 minutes, 23 seconds. So easy. Here we've got time codes. If you want to take it chapter by chapter or buckle up, we'll talk about them all together. But right before we get started, don't forget that if you're watching the show on YouTube, links from the show and a PDF of all our quotes and graphics, it's located in the description below. We hope that it helps you in your study. Also, please know that there is an audio-only podcast. You can find it by searching for Scripture Gems on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. And if you're already subscribed and listening... You might want to check out the video version of the show on YouTube. Search for the Brother Fulmer channel. Yeah. Well, let's get started with the book of Nahum. Let's take our introduction from the seminary manual. It says, Nahum prophesied in the 7th century BC at about the same time as Zephaniah and Jeremiah. Each of these prophets shared insights into the years leading up to the Babylonian conquest of Judah. The book of Nahum contains a prophecy that Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, would be destroyed because of its people's wickedness. The Assyrians had brutally conquered and terrorized large areas of the Near East in the 8th century BC, destroying the northern kingdom of Israel and deporting its inhabitants in approximately 721 BC, and later laying siege to Jerusalem in 701 BC. Nahum addressed a significant portion of his prophecy to the people of Nineveh. These people were not the same as those who had repented of their sins after Jonah had preached in Nineveh more than a century earlier. The people of Nineveh in Nahum's time had returned to wickedness, and their actions led to their destruction. The destruction of Assyria can be likened to the destruction of the wicked in the last days. Nahum wrote in poetic form, using imagery and symbolism. His tone is markedly hostile toward Nineveh, especially in chapters 2 and 3, which describe the city's destruction and humiliation. The book's description of the Lord's anger may cause some readers to feel uncomfortable. However, it is important to recognize that underlying the Lord's anger toward Nineveh is a deep sense of concern for the suffering of the many people who had been conquered, slain, enslaved, and terrorized by Assyria. The Lord's judgments of the wicked are connected to his compassion for their victims. The meaning of Nahum's name, Consoler, plays an important role in the prophet's message. The unrepented wicked will receive no comfort, but the righteous can take comfort from Nahum's message that the Lord cares about them and will one day bring an end to wickedness. So how do we know when Nahum was prophesying? The Institute Manual gives us this insight from Sidney B. Sperry's book, The Voice of Israel's Prophets. It says, quote, The date of Nahum's activity has been deduced from certain statements made in the prophecy, 
In chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, reference is made to the destruction of the city of Noaman, the Egyptian Thebes, as an already accomplished fact. We know Thebes was captured by Ashurbanipal, the Assyrian, in 663 BC. Therefore, Nahum's prophecy must have been written after that date. And since Nahum's prophecy deals with the coming destruction of Nineveh, we know it must have been written before 612 BC, the date of her downfall. We may date Nahum's ministry with some degree of probability, therefore, between the years of 663 BC and 612 BC. End quote. Nice. So Nahum would be preaching much later than other prophets like Jonah and Isaiah, but this would seem to be a few years before the destruction of Jerusalem with prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Lehi. So let's get into it, taking a look at Nahum chapter 1, starting in verse 1, the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The seminary manual offers this reminder related to the phrase, the burden of Nineveh. It says this phrase refers to a message of doom pronounced against Nineveh. The people of Nineveh had repented once before when Jonah preached to them. But more than a hundred years later at the time of Nahum, the people of Nineveh had again become wicked. Now, what follows in verses 2 through 8 is a psalm praising God. This praise describes God as we've seen him throughout our studies this year. Think of times when we have seen these virtues on display since we began in Genesis. It seems Nahum is establishing the nature of the judge before he tells us about his judgment pronounced upon the wicked, meaning Nineveh. So let's start in verse 2. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath. For his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Let's take a look at some of these phrases. The Lord is slow to anger implies that the Lord has given the people of Nineveh adequate time to repent. Yeah, you'd think over a hundred years would be enough time, right? Well, yeah, hopefully, but apparently not. Because they continued in wickedness, they would experience the Lord's judgments. This portion highlights a God of vengeance, a deity with the willingness and the power to right wrongs. He is jealous for his people and does not ignore wrongdoing. Let's go on to verse 4. He rebuketh the sea... He maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The places that were listed in verse 4 are known for their agricultural fertility, according to the New Oxford Annotated Bible. In other words, God is powerful enough to dry them all up. Let's keep going in verse 5. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. 
But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Verse 7 mentions a stronghold. This is a fortification or position that provides a strong defense against attacking forces. In other words, no one who opposes God can stand, while no one who seeks divine refuge, the stronghold, will be denied. In verses 9 through 14, Nahum prophesied that Nineveh would be destroyed for its wickedness, but he gives instruction to Judah, starting in verse 15. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Now, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen that phrase before. We have. You can find it in Isaiah 52, verse 7, and also it's expounded a lot more in Mosiah chapter 15, verse 18 by Abinadi. So it means that the Lord will take care of those that reject him. God's people should take joy in the promises of the Lord and perform their vows. That's good counsel for us today. Yes, it is. For the rest of Nahum, chapter 2 and 3, Nahum saw that Nineveh's downfall would be desolating. These prophecies about the destruction of Nineveh can be likened to the destruction of the wicked in the last days at the Lord's second coming. That might be a good lens to use as you read those chapters. Well, let's move on to the book of Habakkuk. Again, our introduction from the seminary manual says this. This book is attributed to a prophet named Habakkuk. Little is known about Habakkuk except that he was a prophet who lived in the kingdom of Judah, possibly in the reign of Josiah or of Jehoiakim, around 600 BC. The date of Habakkuk's ministry is uncertain, but it likely took place shortly before the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem in 597 BC. If this dating is correct, he would have been a contemporary of the prophets Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Obadiah, and Ezekiel. The book of Habakkuk contains an exchange between Habakkuk and the Lord that is similar to those in Jeremiah 12 and Doctrine and Covenants 121. Like Jeremiah and Joseph Smith, Habakkuk asked God sincere and bold questions that reflected concern for his people and for the Lord's plans for them. So let's start and take a look at Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk's dialogue with God takes the form of alternating speeches in Habakkuk 1 and 2. Some of Habakkuk's petitions take the form of a grievance. Let's take a look in verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. These words reflect the deep emotion and desperation the righteous may feel in times of great suffering and can remind us that even in our anguish, we may turn to Heavenly Father and pour out our troubles in honest, heartfelt prayer. Now, you might have noticed a similar tone to this, like we mentioned in the introduction, to someone like Joseph Smith in Doctrine and Covenants 121 in Liberty Jail, or even Nephi, who lamented about the challenges he was facing in 2 Nephi chapter 4. We've seen this language, too, as we've studied the Psalms. So, going forward, Habakkuk learned that the Lord would use a wicked nation, the Babylonians, also known as the Chaldeans, to destroy the kingdom of Judah. Let's pick it up in verse 5. 
Behold ye among the heathen, and regard, and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land, to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. This message troubled Habakkuk, and he asked the Lord why he would use a wicked people to destroy his chosen people. In response to Habakkuk's prayer, God counseled him to be patient and faithful and reassured him of God's justice, concern, and plans. So going on in Habakkuk chapter 2, let's take a look at verse 4. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The Institute Manual gives us this insight. Sperry wrote that this verse is one of the great passages of the Old Testament. It means essentially this. There is a moral and spiritual distinction between the Chaldeans and the people of Judah. The Chaldeans, puffed up and arrogant, priding themselves in their wealth and power and deceptive in their dealings with other nations, do not possess the moral and spiritual elements which alone can ensure permanence and stability. The people of the Lord, on the other hand, should possess moral integrity, fidelity, and spiritual insight, which ensure for them a future. The future belongs to the righteous. When the prophet says that the righteous shall live by his faith, more accurately, faithfulness, he implies permanency. That's a great clarification. Let's take a look at Habakkuk chapter 3. The poetic prayer in chapter 3 contains Habakkuk's praises to the Lord for the miraculous ways he has protected and delivered his people. Let's take a look in verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, upon Shigeonath. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known, in wrath, remember mercy. The Institute Manual gives us this insight. A shigionath may have been a stringed instrument or perhaps a musical expression used to accompany singers. Possibly this prayer of Habakkuk was set to music and intended for use in the temple. A selah was a cue for the person singing or chanting the words. The use of this word in psalms is further evidence that Habakkuk's prayer may have been set to music. Nice. I remember selah from the psalms. Right. In the last three verses of this chapter, Habakkuk sums up his testimony. First, he lists the tragedies that could befall him, starting in verse 17. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Then Habakkuk declares his trust in God, no matter the conditions of life. Verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hind's feet, or deer's feet. And he will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. Boy, that reminds me of Job's faith that he declared in Job 13:15, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. 
Or remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they declared, God will deliver us out of thine hand, O king, but if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods. I'm also inspired by Paul's question asked about six centuries later. In Romans chapter 8, in verse 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Jumping to 38, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what about what Nephi laments about all his weaknesses and trials, which I mentioned earlier? He says, after he talks about all his fears and worries, nevertheless, he says, I know in whom I have trusted. That's in 2 Nephi 4, verse 19. To me, all of these verses, all of these ideas are embodied in that one word in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Yes, there's all of the rest of this, but that doesn't change our decision to rejoice in the Lord. Because what can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Not if we don't let it. Beautiful. Well, with that, let's go on to the book of Zephaniah. Let's get our introduction from the seminary manual. The book is attributed to a prophet named Zephaniah, who ministered in Judah during the reign of King Josiah, which lasted from about 639 to 608 B.C. Zephaniah may have been a contemporary of other Old Testament prophets, such as Jeremiah, Nahum, and the Book of Mormon prophet Lehi. As well as Habakkuk, if our timing of his ministry is correct. Mm -hmm. Zephaniah's name means the Lord hides. Like many ancient prophecies, the words of Zephaniah can apply to both his day and the future. At the time Zephaniah was prophesying, a foreign army was threatening to destroy Judah. This threatened destruction can be compared to the destruction of the wicked that will occur before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Additionally, the blessings the Lord promised the righteous inhabitants of Jerusalem can foreshadow the blessings the righteous will receive at the second coming. That's a great parallel. Let's take a look at Zephaniah chapter 1. Here he records the Lord's description of the destruction awaiting the people because they, let's pick it up in the midst of verse 6, turned back from the Lord and those that have not sought the Lord nor inquired for him. Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests... And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. Now, this is interesting. The Lord bids his guests to come to a sacrifice that he has prepared and said that he would punish those who came clothed with strange apparel. Strange apparel in this context likely means foreign apparel worn for idolatrous purposes those wearing it would have shown indifference to Jehovah. Now, we've talked before about the symbolic nature of clothing, starting with the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve chose clothing that represented a hiding or separation from God. 
God, in turn, chose clothing for them that represented his loving desire to redeem them and have them in his presence again. Isaiah praises the Lord, who, quote, hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, close quote. That's Isaiah 61.10. This is in keeping with what we know of the Lord himself, who is described as clothed with honor and majesty and light, like it says in Psalms 104, 1 through 2. Those then must be the kind of clothes required to attend this great feast, not strange apparel. Now, instead of a feast, look what the nation of Judah will experience because of their sins. Starting in verse 14, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood shall be poured out as dust, and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. Well, that's a warning. Let's pick it up in Zephaniah chapter 2. But what should they do before the destruction falls upon them? Let's start in verse 1. Gather yourselves together. Yea, gather together, O nation not desired, before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness. Seek meekness. It may be that ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. There's a quote that we've used before from President Gordon B. Hinckley. This comes from an Enzyme article in August 1988 called, With All Thy Getting, Get Understanding. He tells us, quote, Meekness implies a spirit of gratitude as opposed to an attitude of self-sufficiency, an acknowledgement of a greater power beyond oneself, a recognition of God, and an acceptance of his commandments, end quote. Nice. So there will be another day of the Lord before the Savior comes again. What can we do to be more righteous and more meek before that happens? That's a good question to consider. Now, in the rest of chapter 2 and even into chapter 3, Zephaniah prophesied that the Lord would destroy several wicked nations. A similar destruction will come to all of the wicked in the day of God's judgment before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let's take a peek at chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, wait upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. In a BYU fireside called Waiting Upon the Lord in 1990, Elder Henry B. Eyring said, The word wait in scripture language 
means to hope for or anticipate. Hmm. Let's skip down to verse 17. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly, who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth, and gather her that was driven out. And I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you. For I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth, when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. So look at all that he's willing to do for his people in redeeming them. Do these promises and prophesyings, does it make it easier for us to wait upon the Lord? There's a great quote from the October 1999 General Conference where Elder Jeffrey R. Holland tells us, quote, Some blessings come soon, some come late, and some don't come until heaven. But for those who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, they come. End quote. Oh, what a message. So important to remember. What a message. To wait upon the Lord. Absolutely. Even in times of trial, what is it that's going to separate us from the Lord? Only us. We're the only ones. So make that promise to stay true, to wait upon the Lord, and to be meek and prepare for what the Lord has in store for us. Now, I know we're getting into shorter writings of the prophets as we go through the section of the Old Testament called the Twelve, but that doesn't mean that there isn't something in each of these books that we might take away, gems that we might find. So keep reading your scriptures, and we'll talk to you more about them in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we're really big fans. 